0: Welcome to the Home Lab Show, episode thirty, and it's time for another Q and A. Uh, and boy, it's I, thirty episodes. That's what I said. I, I stared at that and said, "I I, I typed twenty in and then corrected it." So some of you may have seen the tweet that says twenty. <laughs> but, <laughs> right. It feels like it's twenty. Feels like twenty. We can't believe we've done thirty episodes. So welcome. I'm Tom Lawrence, and this is Jay, Jay Yeah. Yeah. We are uh, excited. This is a Q&A episode, but we will start with one question and one answer right off the bat. And that's where should you host your stuff, Jay? That would be Linode. Yeah, we're going to thank the sponsor of the show right at the beginning here so we can jump right into the Q&A and let some of your questions build up for those of you joining the live stream. But yes, we do have a list of questions from there. But Linode and Linode just got. Uh, well, a little faster for us because Jay upgraded some memory. That was actually what happened there. So if you're listening to the show, it's literally been downloaded from Linode. We host the Home Lab show on Linode. And uh, what, what were you doing on, on the server there, Jay, this morning?
1: Yeah, so I got an alert from Nagios that um, it was starting to swap. So it's like, okay, it's time to upgrade this thing to a, a better um, plan because it was like the... You know, the lower-priced one, I'm like, yeah, I need to up that. So that's um, a good problem to have because that means that the podcast and the audience is growing. The server is getting more busy, so it's time to upgrade it to have more memory and another core.
0: Yeah. So, And Linode makes that pretty easy. The dashboard is easy to use. They have lots of pre-built, pre-defined templates you can use to get things started. We've talked about a few different projects you can run on Linode on this show. And uh, someone reached out to me just the other day that is running their Uh, WireGuard VPN because they're unfortunately behind a CGNAT system but that's another another thing you can easily do in Linode and that's actually one of the questions people have is about dealing with you know dynamic IP addresses and it can fall into things like CGNAT but you know, having even a small instance in Linode to kind of bridge that gap so people can come to that IP address to get to yours or you can use that to get out. Hey, definitely an awesome, easy thing you can do. Uh, well, relatively easy. We, we're, we've yeah. given you a lot of tutorials between me and Jay. You can run through our tutorials and figure out how to get that set up. But yep. Either way, if you want to get started with Linode, there is an offer code down below that gets you started uh, with the $100 and gets you going, get that thing started and hosted. And uh, thanks for Linode for sponsoring this show.
1: We appreciate it.
0: All right. What is the first question in our Q&A?
1: Well, speaking of um, WireGuard, I mean, also VPN because it's in the same category. Well, not quite, but kind of. Uh, The first question that we received was what's the best way to VPN into a home lab with a dynamic IP address? So we did cover this, but it was kind of sandwiched inside of like a a much bigger um, subject or a much bigger talk. So I think it's great to answer this question by itself because a lot of people want to know that. So the problem is, of course, if you have a dynamic IP address that's always changing, then how do you VPN into that? So first of all, dynamic DNS is a given because that's exactly what, what it's for. A lot of residential um, routers, they actually have dynamic DNS built in. If, um, if it doesn't, you can go with a third party service but then the problem becomes your domain for vpn or your dynamic dns domain is user578 or whatever whatever right. it is some long thing that you can't possibly remember so um, my solution for that is to actually buy a domain and then use a c name so you could use vpn.mydomain.com and have that be a c name to your dynamic dns domain name so that way it's much easier to remember and anytime you know if you change dynamic dns providers all you have to do is just change what that c name points to and it's easy to remember and you can put that in your config um i think that'll probably be the best way to do it if you can't get a static ip yeah and we we dove into
0: the whole topic and we kind of sandwiched it in with the whole buying why you should own your own domain and buying domains uh, that was two episodes ago so it been episode yeah. 28 um, and you know it's a, it's a fair question, but setting up the CNAME means it can always be myhome.yourdomain.com or home.yourdomain.com, whatever you want it to be, and you just create that alias there with whatever dynamic DNS service. This also becomes very convenient from a programmatic standpoint if you build services on that. So let's say you want to do some type of mapping different services when you have your domain you can always switch out because something happens with the dynamic dns you don't have to run around remembering every piece of code that had that reference in there right. you always reference things yourself that way and you know you can just uh yeah that's you know easy enough
1: yeah yeah totally i think that's probably the best maybe the only way to solve it i know there's there's other solutions you could chain together you know zero tier and a Linode or something like that if you really want to um, go crazy. But I think the easiest way is probably the dynamic IP or the um, CNAME idea.
0: Yeah. And I'll, I'll bring up too, uh, we have TrueCharts and they are per, they provide a lot of the extra Docker services and things that you can tie into TrueNAS scale. So great to see them here live in the chat. And yes, awesome. what we did recommend hosting with Linode, obviously a lot of people like to host a lot of their own things. Hey, like I said, if you do Linode with a Uh, WireGuard VPN to get around CGNAT or just to have a public IP space. But when it comes to hosting volumes of data, TrueNAS is definitely a great way to go. TrueNAS scale being in beta right now. But, hey, I know a lot of enthusiasts are on it. Uh, TrueNAS charts does provide some cool things. I mentioned them when I did my TrueNAS scale videos. And uh, cool to see them live in here. But you still want to host your data somewhere and maybe at least have a copy of all your data. And I think TrueNAS is still a good destination for that. And for those of you feeling adventurous, TrueNAS scale beta is still a fun destination for that. Me and me and Jay are definitely working on some upcoming videos. Uh, that was our talk just before this was uh, some of the challenges of dealing with legacy ZFS and moving things to the new ZFS. So, <laughs> yeah,
1: yep, maybe we'll get that collaboration done.
0: Yes, yeah, we are going to work on a collaboration on that. There's all kinds. Ooh, uh, actually, this is good news. Uh, TrueNAS RC one in six days. That's wow. It's moving fast. The development's moving fast on it, and it's because of the enthusiast market out there. I I didn't cover the second beta, which has been released since me and Jay did a video uh, on it. And uh, but obviously, with RC six coming or RC one coming in six days, that's awesome.
1: Mm It's almost time.
0: Lots of excitement there. So more reason for me and Jay to get that get get the progress done. The hard part is moving all your data around.
1: (laughs) Yeah, with that legacy encryption, that's always a pain.
0: Yeah, I think we'll have a mention in a video upcoming on that when we're done, because I'm dealing with it, too. So we both have a lot of thoughts on this and a lot of aggravation stemmed from
1: it. (laughs) Yeah, a lot of knowledge comes from aggravation.
0: Yeah, and sorting it out. And sometimes I'm like, I backed everything up and I'm just blowing away things. And that was my solution. But there's reasons why. And I'll break that all down because rebuilding it right. There's a value in that. All right. On to the next question. This question comes from Tom's tweet where he shows structured cabling of a rack time-lapse cables coming from the wall to the trade at a patch panel, a single short patch cable to the switch. I always find this approach uh, nice and tight together. However, coming from,
1: uh, yeah, turn uh, on
0: industrial. Yeah, it word wrapped and didn't word wrap here. Coming from industrial automation. I was wondering, uh, interrupting a high frequency signal this many times with RG45 could create troubles over time. Can, can, uh, for example, thinking oxidation in environments where humidity is not super controlled and so on. Now, now it's a very different handle in industrial automation versus where we are. We're, we're mostly putting these in the example exactly from the tweet where I showed a time lapse of a rack being built, completely a office environment. Well, it is a kind of a, it's their furnished room, but it's not actually outside of, it has a vent in it. So it's not outside of the environmental controls. It's not going to see high humidity. The fault tolerance is actually rather high. The spec for Ethernet allows for um, a little bit of shenanigans and still working. It's part of it. I, I've talked about this with, I have a couple of interviews I did with the Dan Brera who's part of the Standards Association, IEF, IETF and um, ISO. But you, can, you actually have a lot of tolerance and the way the signaling works on Ethernet, you can get away with a lot. I don't know what the signaling fault tolerance is on industrial automation systems. It may not be as wide of a tolerance supported. So obviously those are concerns. Also, you probably notice we've done a lot of outdoor camera installs you can get away with i'm not going to say rust or corrosion but a little moisture in there doesn't usually destroy the contacts on these you do your best to seal them really well obviously you're not talking about direct exposure to weather but the in a normal controlled environment, it's not an issue. If you're doing this and we have done marinas, for example, when we do those, we make sure we put, we want as obviously as few breaks as possible. And when we do have any breaks, we make sure we weather seal them. There's even uh, special boxes that we've gotten and they're all weather sealed. And basically anytime there's a junction where two wires got to come together or come to a switch or come to a patch panel, you do want to make sure that particular connection is as weather sealed as possible. So it's not that big of a deal. one gig is one gig 10 gig is 10 gig it's rare that the provided you you use quality parts throughout even when you're punching down something like cat 6a those little extra steps of adding a patch cord versus running directly into the switch are almost never ever where the problem is but the manageability that creates of putting a bunch of short patch cords in so i can slide out one switch when i have to service a switch oh, that makes it worth it, completely worth it to have all the patch panels lined up like that. You just pop them all out, slide the switch out, replace the switch. When everything's bundled and going directly into the switch with no patch panels, you did eliminate the thing, but switches fail way more often than wires. So having to get all the wires out of the way to try to, get a switch out way harder to do way more work. So I definitely recommend um, the way you see a lot of them and stuff we posted where everything's run into a patch panel and run around. I also have my DIY home lab rack video where I break down how to, how things can go into a patch panel. Um, It just makes your life easier in a big picture easier, especially uh, if you watch how I break things out. in some of my videos is quick to pop a cord out, put it in something else real quick. Um, There's a lot of, there's more advantages than disadvantages to doing it that way. So I still recommend doing it that way. And it's really not much of an issue. Hopefully that clears up that on when you're uh, wiring things of whether or not it's much of a problem. (laughs) Cool. Yeah, the Jay, Jay will tell you from we were discussing this when we put in the Raspberry Pi video, uh setting up all that rack. It it gets tedious because we were thinking about flipping the pies around and things like that. That may be a future yeah. thing that happens because there's already some inconvenience on getting all the cords to look nice.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think I actually managed to get most of that set. Um, actually, um, after you left, so it looks a lot better now. Yeah, it takes
0: it takes time and planning and Cable management there, I, I have seen, there's a couple people, there's a couple of popular YouTubers that will tell you there's no time in life for cable management. And uh, you know, I still think epos box has great videos, but he has said that a few times and he's definitely not a person who uh, goes through tedious levels of cable management, but Hey, teach your own. I still like, them. I,
1: Yeah, <laughs> I, would, I would say honestly that if you add up all the time that you spend trying to figure out where your cables are going over the course of a year, I'll bet you it's probably longer than it would take to recable it. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. The, um, we're, we're actually got to do a tour of our rack too. Steve. Um, one of my staff members went all out on putting a lot of labels on every wire. Every wire has these little 3d printed things on it. He, they just went a little, it's really nice. It's something more so than we would probably do for a client stuff, but we did it specifically because it's our lab rack. So that's going to be an upcoming video of how we wired our lab rack and, um, why we labeled things in it basically when you go to the back, it's a, it's a full height rack. And when you go to the back of it, we've got these little on each wire, tiny little clipped and zip ties that are tight labels that label, what port each thing goes to that mm-hmm. way. When I'm in the back, there's multiple wires I can grab from and Each one, I know what port it corresponds to that way. As I plug devices, which change quite a bit in that rack, we've had so many things in and out of it already um, that it's very handy to know, okay, it's going to go to this port, or this port. And it's almost done. Um, I'm not going to do too visual, but within my reach, there are a bunch of the short patch tables that people ask about. So that video will be up and coming. That's why I've had them for those of you that may have seen them or me posting and tweet about stuff.
1: (laughs) Yeah. All right. What's the next question we have. So for the next one, um, how do you balance having to learn everything versus getting things done in a home lab? I'll give you a short answer, a very short answer, and then a longer answer. And the short answer is you don't. Um, (laughs) You don't learn everything. Um, You know, I think that's a realization people make over time because, I mean, it's one thing if you're doing a certification, you kind of have to learn everything that's on the list of the topics for that certification if you have any chance of passing the test. But if you're not taking a certification exam, I think a mistake a lot of people make is they'll try to go through an entire book. Like if they're Um, wanting to get better at networking, they're going to read a networking book. But when you get more into this, it's kind of like you read what you need at the time. So for example, if you're reading a book that goes over all this stuff and then it um, has a section about NFS, has another section about Samba, if you have no intention of using Samba, don't read that section. But when you you can always come back to it if you want to use Samba in the future, but you're kind of just slowing yourself down. So you think about the components that, go into your home lab or what how you want it to, to look like. and if you're going to do VLANs, learn VLANs, if you aren't doing VLANs then don't. So if you just stick to the things that you need to know um, in the moment, um, you'll find yourself going through the content faster you always go back you can always go back and learn the things like I mentioned. So I think it's just a matter of just learning what you need in the moment and you know your needs will change over time. And because your needs change over time, then what you learn also changes over time. If you have a job requirement to learn something, obviously that's different too. So you kind of got to know what what you got to know there. But, um, you know, you can get so lost in this rabbit hole of trying to like memorize everything and you'll never memorize anything. I mean, I don't remember everything like I have had times where um, I've consulted my own books because it's been so long since I wrote a chapter on something and I haven't done it in a long time that I have to go back to my own book to read it and that and I, I even create cheat sheets for myself that I maintain so if I'm going to learn a Linux command I'm going to write notes about it if I've never used it before but I'm not going to remember every single flag every single option because that's just insanity. But I am going to remember the things that I'm going to use on a regular basis. So my cheat sheets are just gonna have the things on there that are um, you know, interesting to me or relevant to what I'm doing. So I think that's way more effective I consider books to be more like reference material. Um, it's not like you're reading Lord of the Rings and you want to memorize like every single scene and what the characters are doing, which is which is great in and of itself. But these are tech books here and you only have like so much brain power. So yeah, um save yourself the insanity and just learn the the high-level summary of all the things. For example, you can learn what a VLAN is by definition and memorize that. Before you actually memorize how to set one up, because then you'll know whether or not you have a use case for VLAN because you know what it is. Um, I mean, that could take you five minutes just to read the um, definition of that. You don't have to like memorize every single detail of that. But then one day, if you do want to implement VLANs, then you can go back to your book and read it. So I think that's what I would say is don't try to remember everything. Sanity is very important.
0: And one of the things I didn't do a great job early on enough because they were scattered and I'm trying to do a better job now. I'm still, you got to think about this from a platform agnostic. And I will admit, I use Google Keep for a lot of this out of the sheer convenience of it being everywhere I am. Um, But I can completely export things out of there if I need to. But what I'm getting at is Keep Notes. So when I do things like configure Lux Encryption, I did a video on that, but one of the things I don't remember because Lux has a couple weird things If I remember, right? There's a couple commands that the certain letters have to be capitalized in, which is odd for command yeah. set.
1: Lux but, open is one.
0: Yep. Yeah, Lux open is one. So if I didn't have in my notes, when I do Lux encryption, I, I always pull them up and look at them I'm like, oh, that's right. You have to capitalize Lux open, which is weird. And I can't think of it off the top of my head another command that needs it. But one of the important things though, as you do any type of setup, Make sure you go through the notes. It also gets you more comfortable with rebuilding things. Uh, Like the reason I'm able to tear down and rebuild a server or trash the entire old TrueNAS system that we have and just rebuild it is because I've documented how I set things up. I know the commands. And by the way, one of the things that's really helpful is the repeated process. Whenever I build a server, I tear it back down and build it again before I put something in production. I want to make sure, is that a repeatable process for me? It also helps me uh, make sure my notes are correct. And so I'll rebuild or just build a new VM again. Sometimes I do a lot of stuff in virtual machines and go through it again. And again, it's good, helpful learning. And it's, it's always this push full of you're happy with everything working, but then when do I start the next project? Like said, there's not an, there's not an easy answer to it, but documenting goes a long way, um, because you like, it's just impossible to, well, it's maybe for some person, there's a savant out there that has memorized everything and knows every Linux command.
1: That's not me. Um, Jay's pretty close, but he still
0: still with some in books.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, I also understand too. I mean, I'm I'm kind of a special case because, like, Linux is a hyper focus for me, and I think, um, and that's an ADHD term. If you, if for anyone that didn't know, so I give unfair focus to all Linux things, but also I've been reading about Linux every single day, at least every weekday since 2003. So that's a lot of. You know, reading over the years. So that to get to where I am with what I have memorized, it, you know, that's what it took. But at the same time, I also have to keep looking things up. Like in TMUX, I'll literally have a pane in TMUX that has notes that I've, that I've written. So especially with MySQL. I don't really hyper-focus on that. I'm not that great at it, to be honest. But I have all the commands there for how to do anything MySQL-related that I might want to do. So I'll have that pulled up in Tmux, and then on, on the on the right-hand side, on the left-hand side, I'll have my actual command prompt so I can do the thing. And that's how I do it. So... um believe me, it's hard for, it was the hardest for me to admit that I won't learn everything because I wanted to so bad and I was hell bent on memorizing everything under the sun. And, you know, I realized that is just not very practical, even with the amount of time I put into it. It's just a really high bar to set for yourself. And I just wouldn't recommend setting that bar.
0: Yeah, it's, Trust me, me and Jay both have notes. Plus what you see in our videos is the edited versions of how we did things. So don't think we did that in one take. That's why we complain so much Aww. about editing. So never never use us as the bar, like watch. Oh man, they just seem to know it really well. No, no, no. All the mistakes, all the typos have been taken out.
1: That's what yeah. the editing part is. <laughs> it's funny you bring that up because if you watch one of my videos and um, you know I'm showing my desktop or whatever, I'm recording the screen and you look at the clock at the top, yeah if that's real no if you if it ever jumps like ten or twenty minutes, it could mean one of two things: either one, I got a phone call or I had to run to an appointment or something, mm. or I screwed up something and I had to um you know redo a, a certain part and delete something so um it's a pretty good indicator when you see the clock jump, and sometimes I'll do something later that I should have done earlier, so you'll see the time go down. In a scene, then go back up in another one. So that yeah. that's pretty much the easiest way to tell when I've edited something.
0: Yep, we don't hide it. We're we're very yep. open about it. it. There's no point in leaving our mistakes in the video because it would make the tutorial less concise. Books don't right. have a whole series of wrong commands and a series of right commands in them. So I I, I always like to give that perspective to people because it, I I know when you start in the home lab, a lot of people feel like oh this is overwhelming how did you get this good or how would you get that you know even when i train staff and things like that you're like this seems really hard and you know a couple of years later there you same staff are working here going oh i'm doing this and doing this i'm going to take on this uh multi site vpn project with uh, dynamic routing i'm like yeah no problem you know they're they're doing this when they didn't even know what pf sense was 2 years ago so
1: <laughs> <laughs> and i get up i get annoyed sometimes <clears throat> too because um my biggest fear actually it's not my biggest fear but, but one of them is that I'll accidentally leave an f bomb in one of my videos and forget oh. about it because <laughs> you know like I get so frustrated like I rehearse something like two or three times for a video and I I destroy something rebuild it destroy it rebuild it to the point where I can repeat the process but for some reason when I hit the record button something's not behaving why the heck won't this work and then you know a big chunk of time gets taken out you could probably imagine um some you know expletives that might have been mentioned during the time that i didn't upload in the video so yeah we're human too believe it or not yeah
0: such as that all right now this is not this is something i don't know how to address easily because We, I I don't know how much Jay's got this on his channel in general, but I've seen it on this particular, uh, Mm -hmm. our, our home lab show, but it's people saying, Hey, quit deleting my comments. And so YouTube as a, as someone, um, who's been creating a lot of content I get a lot of comments and I think Jay's seen this too, there are Mm -hmm. a absolute crazy amount of spam that comes at you as well. And I used to have to delete a lot of it. Then magic happened. YouTube's deleting it for me. I don't even get a choice in this matter, by the way. YouTube seems to block people from posting links uh, to anything, and there's some big YouTubers that got millions of subscribers who've kind of ranted about the system. Actually, one of them, uh, he made a he made a joke comment, and YouTube took it as spam and threatened to threatened his channel on accident. He had to get that cleared up. Did a video about it, but uh, that was Graham Stevenson. But back to the point here, YouTube moderation, we aren't, I mean, I rarely have to delete anything because YouTube does it for me, but I don't get a say in that. And this is someone who's complaining saying, quit deleting my comments. And this is not the first person to message us this or message me. I've got someone who filled out the contact form on our, on our site just to let me know that I'm deleting their comments. I'm like, look, I'm not censoring you. I'm not right. trying to do this. You're probably posting links or you're posting something that the YouTube spam system flags. Um, it, it's a challenge. It's not, especially one of the hard ones was all the people that complained about when I talked about bandwidth.com being under attack, you can't say bandwidth. You got to spell the word bandwidth space D O T space com. So I know who you're talking about because anyone who put bandwidth.com, it seen so many people typing that in the comments. They all got deleted, I guess, because someone messaged me on that one too.
1: <laughs> yeah, I do see this actually. Um, from time to time, I, I had someone actually say something to that effect, like, uh, you know, my comments don't show up. I need you to fix it. And I don't really get any control over that. And now the thing the fact of the matter is I try my hardest to go through the comments and answer as many as I can. Yeah. but I can't get to all of them. So um, there's going to be some that sneak in that I do delete. Like I'll put out a video and I'll see like there's no comment. It's just a link and it's to some shady thing or whatever. It's just a bot. And I'll delete those. So a lot of them still sneak in, but I'm actually kind of thankful that YouTube is deleting some of these. I don't want YouTube to delete anything from an actual fan of the channel, but if it's just a bot, then it's just less work for me to do. And I can't do this work by myself until I get to the point where I can hire, you know, helpers to kind of weed some of these out so unfortunately the truth of the matter is youtube's algorithm i don't think anybody's going to accuse the algorithm there of being good or even great or even partially good even bland would be like a a compliment at this point but it is what it is and we're on the platform we don't control the platform but um i try to approve every comment that i can Um, the only time i ever delete something is if someone just says something really horrible to somebody and the the comment doesn't actually offer any value. Like you're an idiot. You can't figure this out. Delete. Um, That's just not going to happen. So, um, so those things I delete, but honestly, I probably only have, I only do that maybe once every four or five months because people generally are actually pretty decent. So I don't really have that problem, but I do have a bot problem for sure. So, and I did have someone um, say, Hey, you need to um, stop. Doing that, I even had someone bring up the fact that one of my videos had uh, Korean subtitles, and I don't know how the heck that happened because I didn't turn that on. So I, I fixed that, but you know, it is what it is. So there's all kinds of inconsistencies on YouTube.
0: Yeah, um, I will also just mention this is one of the reasons me and Jay both have forums is. Because, you you know, forums are way easier uh, for things like that. So, yes, that's definitely um, one of the reasons we do it. I've, I've said that. One of the things I leave at the end of my videos, if you want to have a more in-depth discussion, head over to our forums. Because you, you can't post... Um, like a good write-up and sometimes people do they post a write-up like hey here's the things i'm trying to do they post maybe a graphic of a layout for what they're trying to do or some code snippets and that's where we can go back and forth because i also can't reply with hey here's the code you type in because youtube may flag me if i typed in a bunch of urls as well of or resources and the comments is yeah it, it doesn't allow me to reply is uh feature richer in depth um yep. You know, let's uh, segue real quick, Jay. I did see someone Nathan asked us a question in the live stream here. Is right. there reason to separate your router and firewall in a home lab setup, or is it a good practice uh, to separate the firewall into in router functions into two boxes? I would say right now, here in twenty twenty one, you want to you generally want to keep them the same. Yeah. Uh, it's it's I mean, once you get into the enterprise environments, there are you know data center level routers that don't do any firewall there's directing public IP space around, and um, that's definitely a thing. But when it comes to your home lab, I mean outside, unless your goal is to specifically learn that type of functionality and BGP and really Cool enterprise stuff. Um, for the most part, when you go with the firewalls we've talked about, such as pfSense or OpenSense or any others, my preference is for pfSense. For those wondering, um, yeah, it's firewall and routing all built into one. So I'm going to say I that, agree. yeah, me and your yeah. on the same. Same on that one there. So
1: I, I think the the big thing here is that when you when you understand like an enterprise is doing a thing, like they're they're segregating something, then you might think, well, I should probably do that too because there's a there's probably a really good reason that they did that. But you have to keep in mind that in an enterprise or a company, there's thousands of users, right? You probably don't have thousands of users in your house. So the same reason why they separated something may not be a good reason for you to do it. Just like you can make the argument very easily that it's overkill on my end to have VLANs in my network because there's only a small handful of people living here in this house. So... Um, is there really a traffic or bandwidth need for this? No, um, but I do it because I have different roles for different family members. So, so kids might be locked down a little bit differently than adults, and then the IoT devices. I want to segregate those so they're not actually talking to anything. So I had a use case for that, but then again, you can make that argument. I mean, th- is it going to be better to have them separate? Maybe, but you're not going to notice the difference. It might be so minuscule of a difference that you won't notice it and then you had to buy another device, so now your home lab is more expensive. but for what right um if you're trying to be like the Cisco guru and pass all the exams, I mean that might be something, but then again, I've always told people if you're studying for Cisco, just buy some old Cisco gear off eBay put it in a separate rack, learn it. And then when you're done, put it away because some of those could just eat up a lot of electricity for no good reason. And you could always power it on again when you want to brush up your skills. So I would, yeah, I agree completely. Just leave it in one box.
0: Yep. And uh, if someone asked about the, I think it was uh, Gypsy asked about the Uh, benefits of using like a unify dream machine or unify usg i've done a video recently about all the cons of using those basically they're great for basic routing anything above basic routing they become difficult to manage and a headache but for your basic routing functionality like better they're better than what you get from the uh, your isp or something like that but they're certainly not great if you want more dynamic features more in-depth VPN functionality, you got to go with something like pfSense to get a lot more functionality. I mean, there's more than just pfSense, but that's my example because that's uh, one of them I like a lot. There's Untangle as well, and others we've talked about. Yep, totally agree. All right, uh, all right. Next one, Jay, is the personally finding it quite difficult to navigate in a home server build. Some suggestions for the right processor, motherboard, proper RAM. Oh, this is a fun one. Build it or buy it, I think, is where that act, the question should probably begin.
1: Yeah, that, that's one aspect of it, too. Um, I have other aspects. We got to, okay, so what order, order do we tackle this in? So, build it or buy it. Um, my opinion is to build it if you can, but the problem is it's going to be more expensive and money, you know, we don't have infinite money. So, that's out of reach for, I would venture guess, the majority of people that are doing this. Um, I was lucky enough to have the extra funds to build my own servers, but um, honestly, the servers you get off of eBay, the off-lease servers are plenty great, actually, and they're often orders of magnitude cheaper. In fact, I even have, there's a store in Sylvania, Ohio, that I sometimes go to, I haven't been there in a while, where they just sell servers, like a bunch of servers. And I think for, (laughs) yeah, I think for like $300, I had like, Three servers from there. Three really good servers that I took home for like $300. And that you can't beat that. I mean, that's really hard to beat. Yeah. the I, I'm a big fan of,
0: you know, especially when it comes to a lot of people ask about the JBODs they want to get for a true NAS build. That is something that is so inexpensive to buy a used server versus you'll start racking up some cost if you try to really build right. it yourself with a lot of drives. Um, so it comes time comes on what server you're building. Uh, we have, and I, something I haven't had a chance to do a video on it, but we built like a really nice brand new AMD, uh, here's a Threadripper or a Ryzen system that we're going to be doing some videos with. It's part of our lab, some lab stuff we're going to do. We want to do one where we built it ourselves and then just kind of talk about that. Like, this is a fun way to do this. Downside of a lot of the ones, unless you go with the more expensive motherboards, which now shoots your budget way up. The consumer boards or gaming boards that are going to be popular for a build like that don't have IPMI. Um, we me and Jay have talked about the tiny pilot yeah. and other you know uh solutions that can help get around that, but it also When you get a lot of these enterprise servers, you can get them for relatively good price. They pretty much, whether it's Dell or Supermicro, come with and, you know, check beware before you buy. Do look into it to see what version they have. But they come with the IPMI remote management on there. So you don't need to plug monitors in them. They give you a lot of fancy monitoring of the power and details. And I've always been a big fan of um. The Dell servers because they're, they're plentiful. You can find them for relatively cheap on eBay. You can find the spare parts for them on eBay for relatively good prices as well. Uh, yep. And there's a lot of good documentation if you have trouble setting them up. But I will admit, like Jeff from Craft Computing has talked about the good and bad of dealing with HP servers. So you know, I've always was confused about their licensing with HP. And uh, Jeff dove into that topic of, boy, it's confusing, of HP went round and round. So yeah, if you just type in, like, uh, craft computing HP servers, you can get an earful of the good and bad of buying HP. And he does buy some of them, but they're uh, specific. He's also reviewed a couple of the other oddball servers you can buy um, to build things. So it, yeah, it but- is a tough choice. I'm I'm of the buy used equipment. Um, the downside of the used equipment is... is so people ask how loud it is. And I'm like, I'm sorry. They didn't think of this as you were going to physically have it in your home. So it's not going to be quiet. The nice thing when you go to self build yep. route, oh, it's silent. You can build a really quiet system. You know, you're going to be, because you're building on commodity hardware, you can build as quiet as your, any desktop. So uh,
1: hopefully
0: hopefully, yeah. it gives you more options. I don't know if it gave you a concise answer to the question there.
1: Well, <laughs> so I'm going to add a few more things to that. Um sure. So my personal recommendation is going to be Dell or Supermicro, not HP. Now, that doesn't mean that HP is bad. I want to get that out of the way. I don't know as much about HP, and with the fact that PowerEdge servers and Dell servers in general are so much more plentiful, and there's less kind of um, confusion with those, that's why I I go that direction. You could absolutely find an HP server that's amazing um, and is perfect in every way for you, but um, generally speaking, Dell is easier to get. Um, When it comes to the um, iDRAC remote management, um, depending on the generation, you're going to have a requirement for Java on an older one, or you'll have an HTML5 version going forward. I think at some point you are not able to upgrade the Java version to the HTML5 version in firmware. I don't remember where that's cut off. Now, I haven't used it yet, but I was made aware of a Docker container. It was a couple of years ago. I don't know why it wouldn't exist now that is for the older iDRAC that um, has Java built into the container. So that way you don't have to install Java on your computer. Uh, they, there's this Docker container you could download that'll get you into the iDRAC um, without having to mess with. Because I, I, I gave up literally trying to get that to work. Like I tried so hard. I'm like, okay, I don't have time for this. But then someone just makes a container, makes it super easy. So depending on what generation you have, um, you could still get the older generation if you could use that Docker container, look into that. Um, The other thing I think a lot of people don't think about is um, electric use, like power usage. Um, Mm -hmm. If you can find a PowerEdge server with an L series Xeon, L is for low power, get that one, because that's going to use less power. Also, keep in mind, regardless of what CPU you go with, I can almost promise you the bio settings are not set up for noise or power um, usage efficiency at all. So um, it's almost guaranteed when you power that server on, it's going to be super loud and need a bunch of electricity. Check the bio settings. You'd actually be surprised. Um, you have several different options in there for how the CPU is going to be used. You definitely want to make sure you adjust that. Um, I believe there's fan settings, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but Tom's right. They... Don't make these things for being in your office, but you can get a quiet one. Generally speaking, I find the 2U to be quieter than the 1U um, because there's more room in the case. That isn't always true, but that's often the case. And the other thing to consider, too, is the um, the Precision Workstations by Dell. They're very much server-like. They have yeah. Xeon processors in them. And they're quieter. And they're way quieter too. Like I've, I've, I've seen someone like get a 64 gigabyte precision server or, or workstation for like 150 or $200 with like a bunch of cores of 64 gigs of RAM plus. And that's perfect for this kind of thing. And and the NVIDIA GPU they often come with is overkill because they're, they're not good enough for gaming anymore nowadays. And they're just wasting power, but still use less power than a lot of power edge servers. So I would definitely look into the precision workstations because you'd be surprised what you can get. Now, unfortunately, COVID has dry, driven up the prices a little bit. So when I, you know, saw someone get one for like 150 or so, um, maybe it's 250 now. I don't know, but um, just keep your eye on the prices, and then you should probably find one of those. I think they're probably the best bet.
0: Yeah, there's definitely some deals. Still, there's still deals to be had out there. You just got to keep an eye out and sometimes this is the more difficult one is checking places like Facebook marketplace or Craigslist. You'll randomly find places that are just cleaning out and dumping stuff for really cheap. That's That's hit and miss. Yeah. It's a gold mine. We've, you know, it's funny because even years ago, that's where we got some of the racks that we have. Someone just wanted to get rid of them. We paid a hundred dollars for full height racks. They just wanted you to come pick them up. They're like hundred bucks each. Come pick them up.
1: Yeah. It's Um, like, they don't even want the money really. They just want it out of their their Yeah. They don't,
0: I've seen people give them away for free, but they, they know that too many people show up from free. So if they put some price tag on it, um, we missed, right. uh, we missed out. We had a couple we wanted to go buy, and they sold out really quick. They had a brand new... Some company said, we bought the building. These were here in the box. They were all brand new full-height racks, and we couldn't get out there fast enough before someone snacked them up. Wow. They were nice oh, triple-light ones. Yeah, they were nice triple-light ones. They were still wrapped in the plastic. They're like, these are here. We have no intention of ever using them. There was like four of them, and they were in a warehouse, and they're like, 100 bucks each. Come get them. Called. or like, ah, oh, someone already, somebody ran up there and snagged them.
1: <laughs> I think the only real solution here is to write a Python script that some something- kind of a scraper for these things that could give you an email notification when a new post in your area yeah. has the word like server or you know power edge or you know close out or something and just make sure yeah. you're right on that you can
0: do things on a budget like that and even face it i know people are gonna say but you're mentioning using facebook whatever use it for something functional here uh, if you w- put you can put watches on facebook marketplace to look for things and have it notify you downside is you have to use facebook <laughs>
1: <laughs> one, thing, one thing I did very early in my career, like pretty much before my career started when I was in college way back when, like I literally, I'm not saying anyone should do this, but, you know, it's an option. I put up an ad on Craigslist just saying, I'll, you know, recycle old, old servers if you have anything. And I kid you not, in one day, my car was full Of stuff from the bottom of the trunk all the way to the top like you could even see out the back window i had so many things by the end of the day i had to take the ad down because too many people were telling me to you know obviously by recycle i mean i'm going to be using it i was very clear about that but um you know the fact is sometimes people want this stuff out of there and and oh this person's looking for stuff i have stuff um, you yeah, might get lucky Be,
0: before, before the days of HIPAA compliance and all that, forever ago. I used to do that yeah. too. Um, because people just give you stuff They're like, Here, will you erase it? I'm like, Sure, you know, I mean, this is like 15 20 years ago, right? We never thought much about it. Um, we, we were erasing, we weren't there to do anything nefarious, but it was shocking how much stuff people would give you. They're like, Can you erase these tapes and just like give us a box of them?
1: <laughs> I'm like, someone, Sure, <laughs> someone threw away a computer that at the time was really good, it didn't work because of um. I can't remember what part was bad. I think it was the power supply, which I had you know, from another person throwing stuff away. I had a power supply, so it was easy. I just got it up and running. I think one of the memory modules might be bad. That's fine. I grabbed a memory module from another one, put it in there. It was, it was compatible as luck may have mm-hmm. it. I had a really good desktop for free, so um, you get lucky. Yeah. Um, all right. Uh, what do we have next? Not too many. We're down to the bottom here. I think uh... we there's a couple near the top that I think we might want to... Answer. Um, one of which was okay. testing backups. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, because that that's a really good question, but it's really hard to answer because it depends on the context. So um, that's why there's no one answer to this. So usually what I like to do when you can is restore like for like. So if you have a backup of a virtual machine, then the best way to test that backup is to spin off a new virtual machine from that backup. And then you could just make sure everything is fine. Um, That's easy to do pretty much with every hypervisor out there. But where it starts to get a little harder is if you have a a, physical hardware because then like for like isn't so easy anymore because if you take an image of your PowerEdge 720 or R720, you're going to have to restore that image on something and you have to have a hard drive that's at least as big as the backup is. And then you also have the power bill going up because now you're running another server. Now one easy aside is you could have the server off unless you're testing backups, but then you're literally spending money on a server just for um, testing out your backups. So if you can set up a virtual machine that can handle the data to check it, that's one way to do it. At the very least, make sure you can read the data, mount the image if you can, and make sure everything's readable. I don't consider that a full test, but you can do it. Like for like is usually the the best way to do it. Um, Where it starts to also get tricky is if, you know, you back up your PFSense, right? As you should be doing. Well, okay, you only have one PFSense box, I bet. And it's really hard to like steer your network to another PFSense box that you restore. At least you could even set up a virtual machine for PFSense and restore the backup, which you got to make, then the tricky part of that is you have to make sure that you have the same network cards on there. Yep, so that to line up. That, and that, that becomes a, a tricky challenge right there. Um, so there's no one answer as much as you can restore like for like. If it's a file level backup, that's pretty easy because you can mount the backup and you can just make sure you can read the files. But at the end of the day, you also have a problem with, you know, if you have 10,000 pictures and you want to test your picture backup, are you going to be able to look at 10,000 pictures to test it? And how often are you going to be able to do that? Probably not very often. So you have to find this balance of difficulty and prioritize the things that are the most important you like. If this server goes down, it's gonna cause you the most work. It's gonna cause you days to restore it. It's gonna be a big pain. That's the one that you're gonna focus on the most. Um, any data that you can't get back, that's priceless. Definitely that too. Um, again, like for like as much as you can, but it really depends on the context, which is I think the only reason why we can't really give you like a, a one, you know just one answer on this kind of thing. It also depends on what you're running.
0: Yeah. And so giving an example, and we'll start with PFSense, like here at our office or how we do it for clients. With PFSense, all you need is the XML file. I don't even need an image of the system at all. All I need is that XML file for that system. That means for any firewall that we're using, we've always had two of them. So right now we have an SG5100. We have a spare 5100. we have an identical one doing nothing every now and then i turn it on make sure it comes on and i load it with the same xml file but they're not in sync i don't keep it on live all the time because we're able to swap them out for our clients that need really critical things yeah we set up an ha system for pf sense uh, so you always have two systems running for all the other things here everything that's critical to me is on a virtual machine so i'm backing those up and then i spot check them i take the time every month and i grab VMs, restore them, make sure the restore process works. I actually sometimes do it way more frequently than monthly, but at the minimum monthly, I should say I restore them. I go through the process, make sure that they're good, make sure that I can restore them. And uh, yeah, it's sometimes as simple as that. Do a backup, shut down a VM, restore the backup. And then sometimes the backup one just becomes the live one. I'm like, it's, it, it's one and the same. It doesn't matter. So now this one's the live one. it works <clears throat> and you can't tell yep. the difference. <clears throat> so these are um, they're real simple ones, but it, it, is hard. Now, how do you do this at scale when you start managing lots of servers for clients? Um, Some of the backup tools actually support this This is where it gets expensive as people ask about the tooling we use. And yeah, from the enterprise standpoint, we actually take images of all the machines and then part of the backup process. And this is supported by different backup software Datto supports this. I believe Uh, we're using the enable software, which supports this. It actually can spin up a network isolated instance and then grab a screenshot of the login screen. So it actually, after it does the backup, it then boots the backup up in a virtual environment, grabs a screenshot and attaches it to show you one, we backed up the entire machine Two, We, booted the machine in a VM, even though it came from physical hardware or maybe a VM, depending on how you're backing it up. We showed you that it booted. And now we have not only verified the backup, we've got gave give you confirmation that this system will boot again if needed. And the if needed may come up because once you've got it in the virtual uh, place like that, being able to uh, do all these, there's a lot of things you can do like that that gets very complex, but these are all ways you mitigate that type of backup and, and have yep. it. So yes.
1: Yeah, and there's there's another question that's somewhat similar but also not about um, backups. But this one, it was posed as industrial automation equipment. Basically, you, you most companies have a um, you know that computer that's running that program that was never updated and isn't compatible on any new version of an operating system. Um, what do you do about that? Now, obviously. People are like, "What? This is a home lab show. Why are we talking about this?" Well, I've actually seen this in home lab too, where um, someone—and this is, you know, a lot more common than you might think—they have this piece of software for a server app, or even maybe like a MIDI keyboard or something that hasn't been updated and it's still perfectly usable. But why buy a whole new system just because you know it doesn't support the operating system? And they'll keep it running for that reason. Um, I actually had a funny story. I, I often tell this story because it's so hilarious. But, um, you know, people might have heard this. I don't remember I mentioned on the podcast. But back when I used to um, work at this one company, I, I show up for work, I, I come up to the door and everybody that works for the company is standing outside. Nobody's inside the building. I'm like, what's going on here? And they're like, oh yeah, the computer's down. Right? We can't get into the system because they scan their badge to get access to the door and they can't get in. Nobody in the company can get in the building. Mm-hmm. And then the janitor is the only one with the key comes in and unlocks the door for us. And of course it's my job to find out what's going on because I'm the IT guy. So I go in there and um, you know, naturally the Windows 98 laptop that controls the door unlock system, um, way past the end of life of Windows 98, um, the hard drive was starting to die. So we couldn't update it because it was only for that system, but that laptop was super old. I mean, it was ancient at that point. It belonged in a museum. So what I did was I, and this is this is getting to my answer, you can use Clonezilla to um, take an image of the hard drive, and that'll help you. Like if anything happens to it, you could restore that image. You, you at least need that, and that's exactly what I did. I went a step further, and I um, after I fixed the hard drive, temporarily because I don't trust hard drives after something like this happens. Uh, I don't know if I remember, did I use check disk or spin, write? Anyway, after I got the, the machine booting again, I took the image of it and I actually restored it onto a virtual machine. In that situation, I was surprised that it actually worked. I was actually able to get that to work most of the time. And, and like the question alludes to they, they need direct access to hardware, these old systems. So a virtual machine may not fit the bill, but at the very least, what I would do is take a Clonezilla image of it and try to source on eBay the hard drives for that old system, because most of the time it's going to be an older IDE standard that's really hard to get. And hard drives have a you know limited shelf life anyway. So I would also buy a few of those extra hard drives to keep it running later. But I think at some point you're going to reach a situation where you're just not able to keep it going, but you could get some more years out of something by just um, taking an image of it, virtualize it if you yeah. can. If you can't, then, you know, just... Get, have a few extra hard drives.
0: Yeah. The, um, it's, it's so many different strategies for all that. It's testing, testing, testing. And right. matter of fact, you get bigger than this is where you table talk disaster recovery planning, not just your backups, but, you know, how, what would it look like if you didn't have access or these servers went up in smoke? The magic smoke right. all came out of the servers. How quickly can you replace them? How are you going to source this? Where are you going to restore your backups to? Because you, the magic smoke popped out of two of them. The two critical ones. Now, yeah. what's the plan? Just thinking through those and and having those exercises is uh, is definitely important. Yep.
1: All right. Is any more questions in here? Do we reach the end of them all? Yep. We have two more. Actually. Oh, okay. Um. So actually three more, but but some of them are super quick. The next yeah. one that I see here is about the YubiKey. I'm going to keep this quick. Uh, the person. Um mentions they, they were curious about the resident SSH key feature. Um, I just ordered a bunch of view the keys because I want to refresh the video that I've done. You could watch the video. it's probably still relevant, but I like to kind of update these every now and then. Um, so I haven't had a chance to look into the resident SSH key feature yet, but it might be something we'll talk about later on. Maybe we'll even do a video about it, or um, I mean, I will do a video about it. But maybe an episode, I don't know. At the very least, I'll do it. Um, pr- it'll probably take me about a month to get to it, but I have the YubiKeys. I'm I'm going to be scripting the video pretty soon, so it's definitely going to be happening. And it'll be an updated guide on the YubiKey on my channel, so you guys will definitely get that. We'll def- we'll have to come back to this one because I haven't tried that yeah. feature yet. But and uh, I. Yeah. I have one in my hand and it may be, I think YubiKey is a worthy episode, uh,
0: which you can, can't use it for. I think this is, um, well, not until both of us have probably done some YubiKey videos and things that it work with. Uh, we have a few of them here at the office we've been using for different things. Uh, I just haven't gotten around myself. It's the same thing. I need to do kind of an updated video and I haven't done any videos on it yet, but it's on my to-do list.
1: Yep. And the next one I see is about UPS, um, Uninterruptible Power Supplies how to choose which one you should go with and how to connect it so that you can ensure proper shutdown. So I think when we talked, you had a um, more of a solution for this. I'm a little too old school. I mean, I'm always home, especially since the pandemic, but I work from home. So I don't really have as much of a need as, especially as people that leave the house on a regular basis. Um, On my end, I have a laptop with me. If there's a power outage, I have mine connected to PF sense, which has the APC plugin. And it emails me and alerts me when the power's out. And if I don't get the alert telling me that power's restored, I just use VPN and I just start shutting things down myself. I don't have very many power outages here. So I've only had to do it maybe once in the two years that I've been in this house. So um, I'm lucky in that regard. But you were going to talk about, I think, um, Nut. But the last thing I was going to say about this, though, because they also asked which brand to go with. I've always been using APC. I'm not saying it's the best, but it's always worked for me. It's always been Linux compatible. So since it's working, I've had no reason to go any other different direction. I think some people have been have used uh, CyberPower. I can't speak to that, but um, APC is usually what I go with.
0: Yeah, I think
1: um, is it Techno Tim did a
0: video on. Yes, he did. He did a video on network UPS tool or nut the ultimate guide. Now I I will admit I have not watched his video, but it seems to be well reviewed. Um, But their nut is the tool that is even built on a PF sense. And you can set up a server that talks to the UPS, whatever that server may be. And then it distributes uh, based on triggering that you set the shutdown command everywhere. It needs to be shut down. And so that's, there's ways to get that done. He's covered that in a video. You can read the documentation on it. I have not done anything on it just yet, But I might. Uh, It's on my to-do list. It's not on my done list. It's one of those, you know, me and Jay both, we have so many things like we want to get to on those things. And uh, yeah, it's probably worth doing a video on there, but it's one of those nuts, the tool to do it. Uh, It can send shutdown commands. There's different monitoring tools. You can set up on different systems to monitor this. Um, and, And so you also the point, of course, is just to get the server shut down in a timely fashion. So,
1: yep. And then the last one that came up, um, it's, it's more of a suggestion than a question. And we were already kind of thinking about this, making me think I might've mentioned this. I don't remember, but I think it'd be really cool to have people send us on Twitter pictures of their home lab. And this is a podcast. Let's keep that in mind. We're not going to have a pictorial guide to everyone's home lab as an episode, but if, if there is one that really kind of like, um, piques our curiosity or is just really unique, we might, uh, Paint a visual picture and talk about it. Um, we're not going to do it every time, but I think it might be something that would be fun, if nothing else. If you follow us on Twitter, you'll also see those home lab uh, photos there too. So um, you'll still get to to see them. And if anything really stands out, um, you know, definitely tell us as much about it as you can, um, and and maybe we'll mention it. it. It might be something that might be fun. I think because a, a lot of people are really proud of their home lab if you're a um, server or network admin at your company please don't send us pictures of your company's data center because <laughs> you, you may not as proud of you as proud as you are I'm sure of, of what you do for the company your company might not appreciate their uh, you know their server rack being shown to the world so make sure it's your actual home lab we are the home lab show after all so let's keep it legal here but if it is noteworthy in some really cool way or you've done something that you're proud of Go ahead and tweet it at us and um, we might mention it. If nothing else, we see it on Twitter. So I yep. think that will be fun.
0: Yep. Um, I will mention, since I've seen someone ask this question, it's, it's a common question. Should you virtualize or have PFSense on hardware or your firewall in general? I always go for firewall, for my main firewall and for my business clients, always on hardware. Uh, with limited exceptions yeah. very limited for the most part it's just easier to manage on hardware it's more reliable it's way <laughs> less troubleshooting because the you know you're adding extra complexity now for my lab stuff oh yeah we build I build pfSense inside of XCPNG. You can build it in Proxmox. You can use whatever you want um, because that's a really great way to learn pfSense and dive into it without breaking your main internet. Because the problem is when you virtualize it, this is the problem that we've run into when I've helped people who have virtualized systems. They need to make a change to the virtualization stack, and that change means they got to take down the internet to make the change to the virtualization server to load an update, and now their internet's down. I run pf hardware is cheap to run pfSense on. Getting right. a used hardware protect even the netgate hardware the sg2100 is not a super expensive device and you put one of those in and then now your internet's up while your lab is down or you're doing something with your virtualization stack i mean run whatever makes you happy of course um, but that's my guidance from it i don't see if you want to do it um Go ahead, it, but right. my recommendation from helping and troubleshooting with people. Matter of fact, we've had a ton of people who've had weird, quirky problems that once we got it out of the virtualization stack, and even though it was supported, I don't know, worked fine. Worked fine on hardware. So
1: mm-hmm. I, it's one, I, more,
0: one more problem you can run into.
1: I think when I first started, I was running it. Um, I don't know if it, it wasn't a virtual machine, but I think everything was in one box. So it was the same difference, really. And it, it was a pain. And I, I remember telling myself, never again. Um, So many things would just come up. I would say the main reason why I think this comment comes up is because a lot of people are on a very tight budget with this and they Mm -hmm. can only afford one server. And what they want to do is just have everything on that one server. And I totally get it. If you're currently doing that, then I understand you don't have the money for another device. Totally get it. But at some point in the future, whether you have like a jar and you're just putting coins in there, at some point, you're going to want to move it to another box. Absolutely. Just make that a temporary thing, not a final thing. It's okay for now, but you're going to run into problems. And I don't even remember all the problems I ran into, but just try to get yourself something. Even if you get a used device, like a NetGate device on eBay, I have seen them there. Um, Try that. You could get like the Protect Tully or however you pronounce that devices. They could be a little bit more expensive, but they're so powerful. I think mine was like $300 or something, and it has an i7. And to this day, I don't think I've ever been able to push the CPU beyond 2%. Like as much as I do uploading 4K video, I cannot get that CPU to even go beyond 2%. It's it's crazily overpowered. Yeah. Um, but you don't need to do that. If you could find something for cheap on eBay, off-lease, oh, yeah. or a used thing, just do that. It's so much better. Just make yeah. sure it has enough network ports, make sure they're gigabit. Ah, uh, make sure it supports encryption. I, I think and they I, went they went back on that, but I, I mean they could go that direction again. Well, um, it's for still supporting
0: more ASNI and, and um those and those extensions are still needed for VPN to work well. So
1: right, so I would say just make sure that that's the case. And um, yeah, you'd be surprised how cheap you can get this stuff for. I think it's overall the probably the best bet. Yeah,
0: it, it, honestly, and like someone just said in there, PF Sense runs great on uh, old PC. You can literally take one of these old I5 computers from you know 2012, pop a couple network cards in there, and you, you got something that can route gigabits. So
1: it's still yeah. probably ten times more powerful than a router you would buy at Walmart, honestly, for way more money. So yeah. um because those i5 and i seven CPUs are are overkill for most of this stuff because a lot of the commercial um things they they don't they don't even have a cpu that powerful because they don't need to because of routing traffic it's not like you're gaming right that you just need to route traffic so it's cheaper usually to get a cpu that'll handle it so yeah um, yeah. all right i think we've
0: covered it um yeah. Yeah, I see, I see people repeating open-source SAN. That's going to be a while. Don't expect it this year. Right. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, I mean, I, it's probably going to be, it may get centered around TrueNAS scale. I, I'll at least say that because one um, TrueNAS scale. But I think what people are going to learn is open-source SAN is a word, uh, a, a phrase, a series of words, but not an easily affordable thing to build it at performance. So that's where they're, they're going to learn. When we start diving into how Gluster or Ceph and some of those, Other tools work to integrate all these things together and what you actually need to put it together. It's not it's not unattainable. It's just like, oh, yeah, I've seen people try to build it on lesser hardware and you need you have some reasonable hardware. I mean, of course, it's a good learning experience to play with it at lesser hardware. You don't get the performance, but at least you can understand the concept of how it works. So.
1: Yeah, the determination of, of, these, of every one of our fans is amazing. I mean, I've even seen some people not saying you should do this, but running Linux on a Dreamcast. So, I mean, where there's a will, there's a way, right? I mean, mm-hmm. just just depends on how dedicated you are. You could do some pretty crazy, cool things. And if you do something cool, let us know, by the way, but like we yeah.
0: mentioned earlier. And then you feel free to tag, you know, show us your home lab, tag me and Jay yeah. on Twitter and things like that. So that's easy yeah. places to reach us. And uh, yeah. Hopefully that. Hopefully that. uh, Please, uh, these are questions that came from some of you in the live audience here, and some of you uh, that filled out the form online. Or you know, you can always hit us up, like I said, on Twitter. Uh, We like doing these Q and A episodes. You like getting all the questions out of the way. We don't always have time to answer during the series when we're recording, but I love Mm -hmm. hearing back from all of you. And each me and Jay have forums and places you can post and all that fun stuff. We have lots of tutorials and uh, go through for ideas and things like that and let us know man we like hearing from you sure do all right well thank you again and thank you leno for sponsoring it and thank you all of you we had 108 people join us uh, wow. hit that like button if you're listening to this live all right thanks thank you